John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. You'll remember that Jesus is speaking, has been speaking to his disciples. It's on that night, probably somewhat late at night, after their supper at least, that they've been talking. They've probably left the upper room. Perhaps they're in the Garden of Gethsemane or on their way there. And Jesus now turns from speaking to his disciples to speaking in the hearing of his disciples, but speaking to his Father. He is praying. We know that Jesus prays many times in his earthly ministry. It'll say that he went on the hillside and prayed, or he went into the mountains and prayed. He went off by himself and prayed. But this is the, uh, the certainly the longest recorded prayer we have of him, and really the only long extended prayer from himself during his earthly ministry that we have recorded um, in chapter 17. Um, very notable in that respect. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter today, but I will read verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we give thanks to you for revealing yourself to us, especially through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless the words that we have heard to our edification, to our growth, to our hearts. We pray that you would guide the preaching as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think most of you, I think all of you, have heard of a Scottish reformer named John Knox. Have you heard of John Knox? Yeah, John Knox was a reformer in the 1500s in Scotland, but as he lay dying... At the end of his life, on his deathbed, his wife, Margaret, was reading the Bible to him, and he said to her, go where I cast my first anchor. Now, what do you think he meant by that? Mm -hmm. Go where I cast my first (laughs) anchor. Do you think you know? Yeah. Where do you think he cast his first anchor? 
Well, that's one idea, but that's not what he meant. And Margaret knew what he meant. He meant the chapter of the Bible that had moved him when he was first converted, that had led to his conversion. The, the, the passage of Scripture that he had grabbed onto, the way that you might place your anchor to keep the ship from floundering, from being moved by the winds and the waves, he had set his anchor in John chapter 17. She turned to chapter 17 and read John 17. What we just read and more of it, you know, to the end of the chapter. And then at the end, Knox remarked, what a comfort that chapter is. And that's not only his first anchor, but was his last anchor as well. That he rested in the words of Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. Now this chapter has been sometimes called the high priestly prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer because Jesus is doing this priestly work of interceding for his people. In fact, we find Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king in this chapter. Priest especially because he is interceding for his disciples um, to his father. And we know that he continues to intercede for us. In in Romans chapter 8, we know that not only has he died, but he's also risen and he has ascended to the Father, and he is interceding for us now. But we get an insight into that as we see a, a particular prayer that he prayed on this occasion for his people. Uh, of course, he was also going to do the priestly work uh, at this hour of laying down his life to reconcile us to God. But he's also going to reference having authority, being a king, given authority over all flesh. He'll be a prophet explain, uh, speak of being a prophet, that he had manifested God's name to his disciples. So we see his work as the Christ, the anointed one, which means that he is our prophet, our priest, our king for our salvation. But he consecrated himself and his people in this prayer as the crucifixion loomed before him. If we take a look at the whole chapter, you can see that the first five verses Jesus is praying for himself. He's asking the Father, glorify me. Then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for his disciples, especially in view are those 11 remaining disciples, the ones we call apostles, although much of what he says is applicable to Christians at large. But in context, you know, it's those who had already come to him that he is praying concerning them. And then verses 20 through 26, he prays specifically for Christians who would yet come to faith, uh, or the elect who would yet come to faith, those who would believe through the word of the apostles, which would be like you and me, uh, those who read their words, like in the Gospel of John, for example, and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's why John wrote these things to begin with, is that we might believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ, and have eternal life through believing in him. So that's the whole chapter. Today we're going to look through the first 11 verses. And there are two petitions. What's a petition again? Will you remember what a petition is? Like a request. Like a request, where you ask for something. There's a lot of things that are said in these 11 verses. There's two uh, requests, two petitions. The first is found in verse 1 glorify your son. And the second is found in verse 11, keep them in your name. Glorify your son, 
keep them in your name. So first, glorify your son. Think of the first five verses as Jesus is speaking of himself and and praying for his own sake. We know that he would go on on that evening to pray uh, to his father in great agony as he reflected upon the sacrifice that he was about to do. I don't really know if this happened before or after that, probably before, because he was interrupted and as he was speaking to his disciples when Judas came as a betrayer. There's probably maybe even be some overlap here. But he starts praying concerning himself. The hour had come. The hour didn't just refer to 60 minutes. The hour in this case meant a time that had come. The hour of his crucifixion, then his resurrection, the hour that he had been waiting for uh, throughout his earthly ministry, the hour of his glorification. Now, usually we think of, and properly so, think of his crucifixion as the culmination of his humiliation, that he was obedient even to the point of death, that that was the epitome, the the climax of his humiliation and shame. Uh, But in another sense, he was being lifted up. In retrospect, this would be Jesus held on high for the salvation of the world and one step unto then the resurrection and then the ascension and, and glory. Well, this was the hour, and it had come. And so he prays all of this prayer in light of this work, which sometimes he even speaks about as if it had already happened. Um, Like when he says later, even on the cross, it's finished. Well, it's not finished. He hadn't died yet. But he says it in light of what was about to take place. Similarly here, he says, "I'm I'm not in the world anymore. Well, he is in the world, but he's speaking in terms of this work that was uh, in the hour that he had come to. The hour had come. Now he asks the Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son. You know, uh, be with the Son as he endures this suffering, you know, to, to uphold him as, as he goes through this, but also to raise him from the dead, to exalt him highly uh, as uh, the Father would do. Uh, because he had laid down his life. Now, in verse 2, there's some explanation. You know, why glorify your son that the son may glorify you? Well, the father had given the son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all he had given him. The son, being exalted, would give glory then to the father because he was being exalted for the sake of bringing us to the father. Notice in Philippians, it said that, uh, that all, all confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, as the one brings glory to the other. Now, Jesus had received authority over all flesh. Did the Son have divine authority over all things from the very beginning? Was that his by the fact that he was God? Yes, yes. But he was given authority over all flesh in his office, in his capacity as the mediator, as the Savior, as the Christ. This is refers to his mediatorial kingship, his being king, uh, the king of Israel, the king of uh, our king, the king to save the world, to bring it back into subjection to the Lord. Uh, in this sense, it's in context of a fallen world that is in opposition to God. And Jesus now is given authority as uh, the Christ 
over all flesh. And major reason for this authority is to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given the Son. So we learn kind of two things, two truths, and we shouldn't lose sight of either one. His mediatorial kingship is universal. Jesus, the Christ, is king over all flesh. Does that mean just the church? No, all flesh means all flesh. Among other things, that's why he judges all flesh at the end. He has been appointed as king over all. And he is going to finish this work on the last day of judgment. But even before that, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has received authority over all flesh. And so all nations, all peoples are called to bow the knee to King Jesus. Uh, he, all the nations are his by right. Uh, that God has set his king on his holy hill. And all the rulers of the earth are told to kiss the sun lest his anger burn and they perish in the way. He has authority over all flesh, over every area of your life, uh, over every day of your life. Uh, His authority, even as the Christ, is universal. But secondly, his kingship, this kingship, as the Christ, is for the salvation of the elect. He's been given authority over all things in a unique sense as the Savior, as the one who will then apply this salvation to those whom the Father had given him. Is he given this authority for the salvation of all people? Well, it's offered to all people, but it's not for, the, for all people. It's for those whom the Father had given him. The Father had uh, foreknown, had loved, had set his love had chosen a people and had given this people to the son, saying, you know, son, here are the people whom you ought to save, whom you should save. And the son receives these people. And it is his mission now as the Christ to save them. This is the eternal aspect of the covenant of grace, uh, that the covenant of grace is made with Christ and in him, the elect as his seed, uh, that uh, we are given to the Son, and then we are actually brought into this salvation through faith in Jesus. And he applies this, he gives this eternal life by drawing us to himself so that we come to him and are never cast out. The Father gives a people to the Son, and then the Son laid down his life that he might purchase redemption and therefore then apply it to the elect, to those chosen by God. Some people might emphasize the fact that his kingship is universal, perhaps, and neglect the message of salvation that's received by faith alone. Perhaps others will emphasize simply the, the gospel message of salvation for those who believe and neglect the universal kingship. Um, Perhaps some would neglect both, Uh, but uh, both of these are held together here. He has authority over all things, and that he directs then all things for the good of his people, of those who are called by him and who love him. And so Jesus Christ is king. He is king over all, and most importantly, he is our king 
to defend us and to deliver us, to give us eternal life. And eternal life is the next thing that he talks about. You know, John breaks these things down into simple sentences, but he's dealing with complex realities. So, you know, he'll take a concept and stretch it out over several different simple sentences, you know. And so he's talked, and he does that a lot. He's talked about eternal life, and then in verse 3, he explains eternal life. In verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life. This is it. Knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not the only true God. Uh, it is, does mean that there's only one true God and that the Father is this God, but of course the Son is as well, the Holy Spirit as well, that these three are one God. Um, but uh, speaking of the Father, that he is the only true God, and then speaking of Jesus Christ as the one through whom we know God as the Savior who brings us to a true knowledge of the true God and not the idols, not the false gods, that we come to know God through the Savior, through the incarnate Lord, through Jesus Christ. And so eternal life is knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's through Jesus and his redemptive work that we know the Father. That's, we learned that in chapter 1. You know, it is the only begotten of the Father that he is the one who has made him known. We haven't seen God, but one who is God, the eternal word, one who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known that God has spoken in these last days by his Son. And it's through him, those who receive him, uh, that's become children of God. And we know him. It's a personal knowledge, not simply know about him, but to know him to put it in our modern vernacular, have a relationship with him, uh, to certainly know things about him is required for that, but also faith in him, uh, to have a communion of life in him. He is the source of life. It was by sinning against God and being alienated from him that we were subject to death and separation from God, but rather being reunited with him through the Lord Jesus that we have eternal life. And that life really is fellowship with him. That's one thing that separates eternal life from eternal death is that we have fellowship with God forevermore and a blessed state with him and not his wrath. Verses 4 through 5 then speak of really this, the Son having glory with the Father in all eternity and then doing the work on us, earth and, and then ascending back to the Father in verse 5, he mentions that the Son had glory with the Father before the world existed. Before creation came in, into existence, the Son existed, first of all, so he didn't come into existence at a later time, nor did his personal identity come into existence. It's not like the Son is just a word for God incarnate, and that, you know, he was, didn't exist as the Son before the incarnation. No, he, the Son existed before creation, and not only that, he shared the glory with the Father, shared divine glory with the Father. The Son is not created. The Son is divine. He is with the Father from eternity past, so he is distinct from the Father, and yet he is the only true God, one with the Father. He is the eternal word that was with God and was God. And he came then to earth, not for his own sake, 
but for us and for our salvation. The Son glorified the Father on earth, as verse 4 mentions. He glorified the Father by accomplishing the work that he had been given to do. That's part of this this decree, this covenant, uh, that the Son would accomplish these things for our sake by preaching the gospel, by living a righteous human life, by laying down his life for sin, rising from the dead. He then asked the Father to glorify him in his presence with that same original glory, but now, of course, as the Christ, as now one who is also man, to now ascend to the Ancient of Days and to be glorified with that glory that he had from the beginning. Now, of course, the Father did this. This was no vain prayer. The Father exalted him and highly exalted him, giving him a name above every name, giving him authority, all authority on heaven and on earth, giving him all nations as his inheritance. As Psalm 2 says, ask of me, and I shall make the nations your heritage. So consider what these things mean for you, that Jesus has been given authority over all flesh, including you, that he's been entrusted with this authority to give eternal life to those who have been given him, so that if we come to Jesus Christ by faith, that we can have this comfort and security that this salvation originates not on the basis of your works or your well-being, I mean, not your, your doing well, um, but rather in the grace of God, um, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God, eternal life, that we should draw closer to our Lord to know him, for that is eternal life to which we have been called, and to give glory to Jesus, to receive Jesus as he presents himself as King and Savior. Probably much more could be said on those five verses. Really have um, material for a whole book on the mediatorial kingship of Christ. You know, there in verse, what is it, two or three? Uh, Verse two. Uh, But let's move on to verses six through 11. The second petition is keep them in your name. Well, I should say one more thing about the first petition. Glorify your son. Father did that in his ascension, but he continues to do that. That uh, he glorifies the son as he extends his kingdom, as he draws people to Christ. Christ is still being glorified and exalted. In fact, in this next section, he says that Jesus is glorified in his people, that we glorify him as we receive him as our King and Savior. So the second petition is, keep them in your name. He begins speaking of his disciples in verse 6, speaking of them as the people whom you, that is the Father, the people whom you gave me out of the world. The people given to Jesus out of the world is kept by God. The Father gave them to Jesus. Jesus manifested God's name to them, and they kept his word. Notice how his word and his name are parallel here. Um, Also realize that he's spoken of knowing God, and now he's speaking of manifesting God's name. So to manifest God's name to them is to show God to them. Uh, to give them the knowledge of the only true God, which is eternal life. Uh, That this is the word, the gospel, that he has taught them. This is his office as prophet, revealing the will of God to them for their salvation. Jesus says, I have done this. 
to these disciples who have followed me. They have received your word. They have kept your word. Verses 7 through 8 expand on this. They've received Jesus as the one sent by God, that his teachings are from God. Uh, Having Christ, they therefore also have the Father. They were also chosen and called out of the world. They do not belong to the world. In fact, they will receive the hatred of the world. Jesus does not intercede for the world, but he intercedes for the elect. And he makes that clear in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So there's two people, two groups here. Those whom you have given me are distinct from the world. Those who belong to Jesus belong to the Father. He says, all mine are yours. All yours are mine. No one has the Father who does not also have the Son. Those who receive Jesus do have fellowship with the Father. Now, in verse 11, calls attention to the fact that they are still in the world. Are you in the world? You're not of the world. You don't belong to the world. But you are in the world in the sense that you live here among uh, the fallen world of humanity and in this place and age. We have not ascended to, to heaven. This world is a dangerous place. We have those who would pressure you to compromise. We have your own uh, sin dwelling within you. You have the devil who seeks your destruction. And so Jesus prays for those who would be remaining in the world. Think of how in Revelation it speaks of the dragon seeking to devour the child who would come, the promised Savior, and then he was took, taken up to heaven where he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so the dragon turns from pursuing him to turn his, uh, his hatred, his uh, hostility towards the woman and to her offspring, to the rest of the church. And Jesus knows that there will be a conflict awaiting his people after he ascends to the Father. And so he prays for his people. We still live in the world. He was no longer in the world. Again, thinking of this in terms of having already died and the hour taking place. And so he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so here he intercedes as our priest uh, for us. Jesus prayed that the Father would keep us, keep his disciples, that is, to guard them, to keep them safe, to protect them. Not only that, but to keep them in his name. That is, to keep them as his people, to keep them in the faith. We have a a thread here, the knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ to him he have sent, which we find through the manifestation of his name, the word that Jesus preached, And therefore, then the Father preserving us in that word, in that name that has been manifested to us, the gospel, that we might be preserved in the faith and hold fast to it. And therefore, being preserved in his name to be one, to be one people, to be united as one, reflecting the unity of the Father and the Son. We are kept by God in God's name that we might be one doesn't happen the other way around to be one and therefore be in God's name. Um, you, can gra- you can 
have a group of people that are one in some sense that doesn't make them God's people, but rather to be God's people and therefore to maintain that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, having one Father and one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. It is a unity created by God, but then also to be maintained and strengthened and manifested that we be of one mind and one spirit, as Paul and the apostles would continually urge the church to do and praise them when he sought and pray to God for it, that is still the desire of Christ and ought to be our desire as well, to see the church to be one, to be unified uh, in all sorts of ways, unified in Christ, in faith, in love, as one body, to not be divided from one another, even to be one as the Father and the Son is one. That ought to be reflected in the unity of the church. That doesn't mean the same type of union in every respect. You know, some people will say, oh, well, we're to be one like the Father and the Son are one, so therefore the Father and the Son must not really be one because we're not one. (laughs) Or, Or that we could only be one in a certain sense, and therefore they really just must be two gods that get along really well. No, that's not the way to think. That's the going backwards. Rather, um, we should understand the unity of the Father and the Son, firstly, and then hope for a similar unity, a unity that reflects that among believers. To be of one mind, uh, to be standing side by side, striving for the gospel. Uh, to be one people uh, that are unified in Christ. This unity is the same that the apostles urged the saints to maintain for, uh, maintain, and praise them for, as we saw in Philippians 1 through 2, for example. Uh, the church still needs this prayer. Uh, certainly there is a spiritual unity that is created by Christ, by our fellowship with Christ, uh, that is created by God. Uh, But this is also a prayer to be maintained and realized, that we would manifest this more and more and not be divided from one another, not proclaiming different messages, that we would proclaim the same message. Um, And there is much work to be done. But the, the goals and the reality is one flock and one shepherd. And that shepherd is not the pope. That shepherd is Christ. In conclusion here, we should reflect on the fact that salvation and eternal life is from God. It is by his grace. It is from the foreknowledge of the Father and the work of the Son applied to us by the Holy Spirit. It is through knowing Jesus Christ and in him knowing God. So take refuge in Jesus Christ. Uh, he is where salvation is to be found. And then take comfort in his prayer. If you are Christ's, then you can take comfort in this prayer, that Jesus is praying for you, uh, that the Father hears the Son, and that he uh, will do these things and keep you in his name. What a comfort this chapter is. Jesus has been glorified. He has glorified the Father. Jesus is glorified among his people. The Father has kept those whom he gave to the Son, He was with the apostles as they went forth and suffered persecution and were maintained by the grace of God. He is still keeping 
Christ's disciples. May he keep us in his name, and may we be one, even as they are one. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for sending us your Son to be our prophet, priest, and king. We pray that you would uh, continue to work in these ways uh, to keep us, protect us, for vileness is exalted among the children of men. Uh, there is uh, strife and contention and temptation that surround us, and uh, those things which would seek to seduce us from faithfulness to you, to pursue other paths or to go astray. We pray that you would keep us, therefore, in the gospel that we have heard, in the hope of the gospel, that we might walk faithfully in Christ side by side with one another. And we pray that in this way you would glorify the Son, that he who is exalted on high would receive glory uh, through the extension of his kingdom and the uh, preservation and sanctification of his church. Uh, we pray that you would continue to uh, maintain the glory of his name um, and we ask these things in his name. Amen.